Well, Mike mentioned that um, we were ordained together, and actually we were ordained together this day, 16 years ago. So it's our anniversary of ordination, along with Kelly Parsons, who is a lovely friend of ours and deep friend of Monica's as well. Um, so Mike and I have been gathering for 20 years and talking about the Dharma, talking about our practice, supporting each other. And we have so much fun. You know, we, we've spent hundreds of hours, I mean, literally hundreds of hours. Our, our, our spouses wonder, what is it you guys can talk about for, for that long? <laughs> so we thought that today for a Dharma talk, what we do is simply invite you into our conversation and, and invite you to be, to be a witness to what it is that has supported us and given us so much joy for so long. So we're going to explore joy together. So shall we begin, Mike? Sure. Okay, you want to say anything as an introduction or you want me to start asking you questions? Um, uh, well, I guess uh, bef before, I, before we start with the questions, I would say that um, I'd, I'd just like to share what gives me a joyful baseline. Um, the sutras, the dharma, our, our noble ancestral teachers, our current teachers have all taught us um, that each and every one of us have Buddha nature. And, and more accurately, we, we are Buddha nature. And awakening is our birthright. You know, awakening is available to us in the here and now if we just touch it with our awareness. And though I've been practicing for a little over 30 years, it's really just in the past 10 years or so that I've come to realize and actualize awakening as a reality in my life. John and I like to, uh, like to study the, the ancient Zen masters, and I often refer to uh, Zen master Dogen, Heihei Dogen, a 13th century Japanese monk. I, I uh, refer to him as the 13th century Japanese Thich Nhat Hanh. In his 52 or four years, he left a body of work that is amazing. But one of the one of the main things in his work is that he teaches that when we practice zazen, when 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 we do Zen meditation, we are practicing awakening. That is awakening. The very act of sitting in awakening gives me this huge foundation of joy and a baseline of joy. And I know that's true for you as well, John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm wondering, um, how would you define joy? What does this actually mean? Because I think we use this word a lot, but what is it actually? That's such a good question. So my definition of joy, and I know you and I kind of differ a little bit on how we think about joy. So mine is highly influenced by Thich Nhat Hanh. So the, the first book I ever got of Ties is Breathe, You Are Alive. <clears throat> and it's the 16 exercises of mindful breathing. And the fifth exercise is I am breathing in and feeling joyful. I'm breathing out and feeling joyful. 
And the sixth exercise is I'm breathing in and feeling happy. I'm breathing out and feeling happy. And Tay says that joy arises naturally when we calm our body and calming the body and making the body at peace is the fourth exercise that precedes joy and happiness. And in the heart of uh, the Buddha's teaching, which is another book of taste, uh, he says that uh, joy is like when you're thirsty and someone offers you a glass of water. That's joy. And actually drinking the water, that's happiness. And in another place, he says that traveling the desert and seeing a stream of water, cool water, wow, seeing that in the hot desert, the cool water, that's joy just to see it. And then drinking the water or dipping into the water, we experience happiness. So Kai kind of says that, that I, what I get is that, that joy is anticipation and happiness is the realization. Um, and it's our experience of that that's, I think, more important than the definition of it. But um, so today was a perfect example for me. So I woke up at five o'clock because I was so... Uh, enthusiastic and ready to do this and so happy that we were going to do this and brought me a great deal of joy to just sit in the morning knowing this is what we're going to do together and now happiness is actually doing it together and uh, but I'd say if I want to define joy the way I relate to joy is it's the well-being that arises from perceiving the nature of reality. So stopping, looking, perceiving the nature of reality, how it is. In that there is joy. And I know we sometimes make definitions uh, of things by what it's not. And so one, something that's important to me, and I don't know how you feel about it, John, is that joy is not the opposite of suffering. I can still be joyful in the midst of suffering. Yeah. yeah. So how do you define joy? How do you think of joy? What is joy for you? Well, it's so interesting because um, we get to it from a different direction, but where <laughs> we get is exactly the same. So one of the things that, that you and I have noticed over the years is that you you really love like the sutras and the sort of the scriptural basis of our practice and you know it really, really well. And I tend to focus more on the experiential part of, of practice. So I think that that, we, that brings us to different directions. So, so for me, you know, the experience is really the truth and any of the words that we apply to it is just um, brambles. It's it's it ultimately confuses me because then I get stuck on the words. But when I can see the experience itself and know the experience for myself, that's something I can really trust. And I think that's what we're pointing at together. I think we both know that experience. So for me, it's I, I have a different way of describing this than Ty does. Um, for me, happiness arises due to circumstances. But joy is not dependent on the circumstances. So what do I mean by that? 
Um, Ajahn Sumedho uh, had this great quote that I come back to again and again, and he said, of course we can always imagine more perfect conditions, how it should be ideally, how everyone else should behave, but it's not our task to create an ideal. It's our task to see how it is and to learn from the world as it is. For the awakening of the heart, conditions are always good enough. And I think that's his way of distinguishing happiness from joy. You know, with happiness, we're looking for the conditions to be just right. And when they are, happiness is present. But it's possible to have joy even when the conditions aren't just right. So for me, for instance, a, a sunny day makes me happy, right? The conditions are right for me to be happy. That's what I like. It's a sunny day. But that happiness also has a shadow side, which is that the sun might go away. And then where does that leave me? With joy, I can enjoy the day, whether it's sunny or rainy. I don't have to wait around for particular circumstances. So one way of, one way of um, maybe I think about this too, is happiness arises from my separate self. My separate self is full of preferences and things I like, things I don't like. And when my separate self is pleased by the circumstances, it's happy. But even when, my, uh, even when the conditions aren't right, my true self has joy. So that's kind of the way I, I think about it. And I've also noticed that in my practice, I have moved from a practice of happiness to a practice of joy. So mm -hmm. I began by transforming all the conditions of my external and internal world so that I would be happy. You know, and that was make changes in my life, make changes in what I do. Uh, the precepts are a big part of that, how I relate to the external conditions. But then I discovered over time, bit by bit, those external or internal circumstances mattered less and less. And what mattered more was simply being present with life as it is. So it, I just have noticed this transformation over the years from focusing on happiness of conditions to being joyful in whatever conditions present themselves. Mm -hmm. So does that sound to you like we're pointing the same direction? Uh, I think so. Uh -huh. I think so. And I think we're both saying that, um, uh, oh, I completely relate to what you're saying about uh, um, happiness trying to, to be like orienting conditions. And, uh, it, you know, I, I realized quite some time ago that uh, no matter how, what I do, I'm not going to make enough conditions for me to just be totally happy. I'll always have something <laughs> more. And that... With joy, I can touch joy right now, all the time, simply touching my awakened nature. There is joy. My awakened nature is perceiving the truth of things just the way it is. Yeah. And not being crushed by our preferences about whether the way mm. things are meets our preconceived notions of how they should be. Well, and in fact, that sort of tickles us. That when, when you realize kind of the, there's humor in 
in, in trying to, to organize the world so that it, it supports your happiness, uh, my happiness. And, and I, I just kind of chuckle when, when I see it. And that, I rest in that joy. <laughs> and one of the real advantages of our long-term friendship is that over time, you and I have both been able to see for the other the unconscious way that we are trying to force the world to be different than it is, hmm. to be happy. And, and it's so hard to see that just as an individual, but as, as friends who know each other deeply, we can point out to each other, hey buddy, I think you're stuck there. And it's so, it's so helpful to be able to see that. Yeah. Actually, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Why don't we talk about um, the, the joy of our friendship? Great, great. It's jumping around yeah. a little. Well, you know, I, I mean, the, the thing that I, that I just marvel about is the preciousness of this friendship, the, the, the rarity that here we met at MCPS as aspirants. Maybe before that, we were, we were Sangha members, but we really, we really deepened as aspirants. And, um, and how over this time we've unfolded in a, a single practice in two bodies, is a, is a phrase I, I use a lot. And how, how did we get blessed with this? It's amazing. Know? Yeah. I mean, it's both happiness because the conditions are really wonderful, but there's something deeper that, that, that is at work here that's joyful, that, that feels bigger than us. Um, oh, one of the things that's just so true is that we re reflect our essential nature back to one another. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned blind spots. You know, we, <clears throat> we both have blind spots, or we all have blind spots, uh, about things that we, we're not doing well or things that we could improve, but we equally have blind spots about things we're doing well and don't realize. And one of the things John and I do for each other all the time is point, he'll say, you know, ah, I'm struggling with this and I'm not doing this well. It's like, I can, I can say, okay, so I have a history with you. Let me tell you down through history when you demonstrated this character quality or this thing. And I, we just both get so much joy out of reflecting back yeah. that essential nature that is always there. Yeah, and I think from a practice level, what this has given us is this deep trust in the essential goodness of our awakened nature. Mm -hmm. That this isn't about you and me. This is about mm. being able to tap into the goodness that is at the core of all of us. Mm -hmm. That is such a joy to be able to see. And you really see me. You know, you always say that too. You invite me to be completely myself. You always say, the world needs Mike to be Mike. The world needs you to be you. Right. And anybody who's spent any time with Mike, like in Vietnam, for instance, I remember one time, walking down the streets of Hoi An and and here's here's Mike this western guy that goes down this street full of shops and by the time he reaches the end of the block he's got this stream of people behind him he's got six new facebook friends you know it's just like the world needs this <laughs> the world absolutely needs this <laughs> yeah well what do you think about um should we talk about rather than just our practice. What about the joy yeah. of practice in general? Cool. Yeah. yeah? What, what, what would you like to say about that? 
I, I love our practice. I so enjoy doing it. I, I take such joy in our various practice forms. And, and you know, I want to start right out. You know, like there, there are no right and wrong forms. The forms of our practice are what works for me, what works for you. Those are the things that we adopt. Um, and, and so, uh, so one of the ones that was really kind of up for me very early in, in my practice was that I noticed when we all got to the Zendo at MCPS, uh, we kicked off our shoes outside the Zendo and there'd just be this huge pile of shoes. And it occurred to me that if I put my, if I put my shoes mindfully and deliberately with the way I put my shoes, I, I show you my mind. Yeah. The way I put my shoes, I show you my mind. And it took me a while to realize the way I put my shoes, I show me my mind. Exactly. <laughs> I show me my mind. Right. Um, and so that's one of the practices I do everywhere. It's, it has nothing to do with just the shoes. It's the way I put the bell down. It's the way I put you know, my phone down. It's the way I approach my cushion. Um, you know, that's a, that's another thing. My cushion, I, I love, I, there's such joy for me in sitting down and just taking my cushion. And this is, this is my seat of awakening. It is a sacred place, made sacred my butt on the cushion, <laughs> by my butt on the cushion. Um, and, and so, uh, it's hallowed ground. And it's not, not because of anything in itself, it's because it's the place that, that I get to sit to wake up. Um, sometimes it's viewed as rigidity from outside. Mm. They see they see the way you and I love the practice forms and it looks like, oh, like what's wrong with this guy? Why does he have to do this exactly precisely this way? But I think what we've experienced is that it's just simply the joy of coming back into that container and, and help using that container to let go of our preferences. Maybe we don't want to bow to our cushion at that moment, but we do it. And it helps us drop the preference and simply be in the joy of the practice container. That, that, that is so accurate the, the, the sometimes we just don't feel like doing it. So the, the Zendo here, this meditation hall, is a room in our home. And when it's not COVID, we have 15 people here every every Thursday for, for Sangha. Um, but it's just a room in our home. And I, I've made, I, I bow each time I come into this room, no matter if it's to just come get something out of the closet or whatever it is, I made a bow to vow. Um, and so I do. Um, I bow to my cushion every time I take it. If I get up for a second, I bow. It's just another moment of coming back and I just connect again with that joy, that intimate joy of this moment, this stillness, this room, this practice. Well, and I, I think we both really felt the power of our, our small sense of self and how if that isn't contained with the practice forms, it will prevent us from feeling this kind of joy. Mm -hmm. And so the practice forms end up being a liberating thing, not something that, mm -hmm. that restricts us. Right. So I sort of think of, of, of joy as what arises when I let go of everything else. 
So when I do the practice form, it helps me let go of the things that in, would arise in my mind and in my habit energies and prevent me from accessing that joy. Um, yeah. uh, one is just the, the um, that every time I sit, as I take the cushion, I, I connect with my intention to pay attention to my intention to pay attention. And, you know, as many times like sitting today, it would be really easy to wanted to go like spend time thinking about what we were going to say in, you know, 20 minutes later in this Dharma talk. Um, but I just kept remembering my intention to pay attention to my intention to pay attention and coming back here, this moment, just this, Right now, it's like this. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I forget that. You know, I forget that I get wrapped up in what my mind wants. And all I have to do is take one breath. Mm -hmm. And there's the joy. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have to improve myself. I don't have to change anything. And ironically, in, in doing that over and over again, in not trying to change anything, not trying to improve myself, suddenly it happens. There is change. And, and I don't notice it until I put myself in a, in a difficult situation sometimes, like when I was with the, at the death of my niece recently. I was different. I was just different. And I couldn't have consciously, with my ego, made those changes to me. But coming back using our form like this, it just does that. Hmm. You want to say anything more about that, or should we go on to something else? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm good with jumping to factors, maybe. Okay, so what are the factors of awakening? <laughs> what does that mean for you? You know, I know, again, we're going to come back to more of the sutra base, because this is really your, your, your love and your experience. <laughs> so, so tell me about the factors of awakening and how that works for joy. So uh, anybody who's been practicing for a while, you know that that uh, Buddhism is a lot of lists. You know, the four of these, the eight of those, the five of these, the five of those, uh, and and one of the lists is the seven factors of awakening. And joy happens to be one of the things that shows up on a lot of those lists. Um, so we're promised in that. Uh, that sutra on the full awareness of breathing, the Anapanasati Sutra, and, and the Satipatthana Sutra as well, that simply practicing mindfulness of breathing, awareness of body, mindfulness of feelings, feelings being sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, Mindfulness of mind and mindfulness of the objects of our mind. So, both the Anapanasati Sutra and the Satipatthana Sutra promise that if you just do this practice, these practices that I just mentioned, it will cause the arising growth and attainment 
of the seven factors of awakening. And what are those factors? Mindfulness, investigation of phenomena, diligence, joy, ease, concentration, and what John has alluded to a number of times, letting go. So the factors of awakening are the characteristics of awakening and they are awakening itself. The first factor is mindfulness, remembering. We remember our body and mind in a momentary glimpse of awareness. That's what mindfulness is, a momentary glimpse of awareness. And that leads to observation, shedding light on phenomena. And observation to shed light is investigation, the second factor. And investigation opens us up when we look deeply. It gives rise to energy, at least for me. It energizes me. And the diligent and persistent effort to continue to deepen brings me such joy and ease, just the, the intention and aspiration that each moment invites me deeper. Enjoys the natural result of, of persistent focused energy. And then energy spent on glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of awakening, tying glimpses of awakening together, that's concentration. Concentration, glimpse after glimpse after glimpse, and we disappear for a moment, and glimpse after glimpse after glimpse, we come back. And concentration leads to deeper understanding. Kind of back to what, what I was talking about earlier, that we clear, clearly see the Buddha nature of all things. And when we do, we can let go. Letting go is a seventh factor of awakening. Like I said before, the factors of awakening are the characteristics of awakening and their awakening itself. I love the way the, the Buddha was such a scientist and brought specific specificity to this, you know? So what I'm describing is that, that momentary take a breath and there you are. And, and he described these steps, these these fine-grained observations of the steps, and that's what I just heard you you talking about. Yeah. Uh. And joy is a factor of awakening. Joy leads to awakening. Joy is awakening itself. In the moment of joy, we're awake. So, so let's talk about the joy of others. So, taking joy in others' joy, can you kind of reflect on that for yeah, us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, one of the things that, that you and I have noticed as we've been moving into this teaching role over the last few years is how much joy we take in the people that we serve. Mm -hmm. You know, the, in the practice of the people that we serve and watching people unfold and grow, mm -hmm. um, it is such a deep joy. and. 
And when I think about it, one of the, one of the reasons it feels so joyful to me is that there's not a residue of self-interest in it. You know, with, with my own joy, there can be a residue of self-interest, at least my own happiness. There's definitely a residue of self-interest. But with the, taking joy in the unfolding of someone that we're serving, it's just pure joy. Um, it's, it's not bounded by our, con, our conditions at all. It's mm, so great. Hmm. And, and another thing I think I really take joy in it is this interbeing nature. Ty would always say that, that you, the student sees the teacher in the student and the teacher sees the student in the teacher. And, and we do that. We see, our, we see our students in us and we see us in the students. And that is really just like, it's so much fun. It's like watching ripples go in a pond that just go out. We can't figure, figure it out where, where it started, where it's going, but it's just fun to watch. Like, and one, one of my favorite things there is when, when I'm working with somebody and, and they, get, they get what the point of placing the shoes was and they come back and say, I've started doing this. This helps me wake up. This thing that I do every day, when I reach out and touch the refrigerator door, I wake up. When, when I you know, bend over to pick up my keys, I wake up. Uh, I, I get very a lot of joy out of hearing people finding their way with the practice. I'm smiling right now, just, just dwelling in that joy. It's really, really beautiful. And I think the same thing's happening with the songas that we lead. So, you know, like uh, we, we have three songas that we lead and they grew out of us doing this. And, and now these, have, these sanghas are growing. They're larger than us. They're beyond us. They're not dependent on us. And, and it, that is such a joy to see that happening. Um, yeah, and increasingly I'm, I'm thinking about the end game, you know, because we're not going to be around forever. So how do we make these, how do we help these sanghas be thriving in a, in a place where this can happen over and over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, yeah. It is happening. It's, we hear it all the time. I mean, but there are so many, so many sanghas that are thriving in the midst of this pandemic through Zoom. Uh, people are connecting. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. It's like the, the for those of you who don't know about the morning group that, that meet, John and I, a year ago, um, we're celebrating the year tomorrow. Uh, a year ago, we were sitting and talking about how we share our practice this way. And we thought, you know what, let's, we haven't seen so many people that we've been practicing with for 20 years. Let's, in, let's invite them to come and practice with us in the morning at, at seven o'clock. So for a couple of weeks, why don't we do this thing where we practice at seven and more seven to seven thirty? Well, it's yeah. like, 25 to 30 of us meeting every day now for a year uh, 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 and it's it's just wonderful and when John and I aren't leading it we I mean we're two of the leaders but it, it's uh, the the leaders have arisen in it the sangha is beautiful it's sweet uh, the sharing is amazing the pe the realization that people express I'm I'm tickled <laughs> yeah it's really fun Hey, I'm looking at the time. I noticed that we're getting a little close. And I was thinking one of the things we might want to talk about was the joy of giving. Because mm. that's a whole other kind of joy and, and really important to our practice. So, mm. and, 
Yeah, and and I know we're both taking a lot of joy in giving, and we've been doing that together for a long time. So I know it all wasn't always that way for you. So, what's up with that? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I I grew up in a family that was pretty stingy, and so I I I carried that into my early practice in particular, and um, uh, it I I didn't want to give monetarily. I didn't want to give of my time. I mean, really, the first four years I was at MCPS. I said right off, I, I don't have time to really give. I'm going to come here and sit. And I just came and, and took and took and took and took. Um, but something has shifted over time. And I've learned to take great joy in, in giving and, and see that stinginess as, a, as a, a mental formation that really imprisoned me. And luckily, I've had this really great teacher about that. I've had several. Mike's been a fabulous teacher about that. Outside of the practice, though, my wife's grandmother was mm -hmm. one of my best teachers on this. She, she lived to be 105 years old, and she and her husband built these two houses side by side in Hawaii, one for themselves and one for his parents and siblings, because he was the oldest of 10, and it was his responsibility to support them. And so she spent her whole life giving to others and she they didn't have much at all but always there was she was sending us home with little red envelopes with a chinese uh, hawaiian tradition of little red envelopes and uh, i saw how after a lifetime of giving she was the most secure person financially that could be because everyone was there to help her as she aged everyone that we were people were climbing all over themselves for that hmm. You know how I mentioned earlier how, how these we don't intend to change, but we do change. And I, I, I was just thinking the other day about um, how much difference has occurred. So when we threw her a 90th birthday party, that's a big deal in, in Hawaiian Chinese culture. I mean, we had 300 people at a sit down dinner in a hotel in Waikiki and it would cost about thirty thousand dollars. And I remember, oh, my gosh, we have to contribute to that. And I was reluctant to do to do that. And all of my wife's siblings and family were just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then now, some years later, when our niece uh, just recently passed away, she didn't have any money for funeral costs. And so Sandra and I said, oh, of course, we'll pay for that. And I was joyful about doing that. You know, I was, I was joyful to, mm. to, to contribute in that way. So I'm just so lucky to have had her as a teacher and, and Mike, you as well. Your generosity is just one of your primary gifts in life. And mm. Thank you for that. Thank you for helping thank me. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm interested in your relationship with your, with your work with ill and dying people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think we both had the experience where um, it seems like what we do in, in working with the ill and dying is, is giving, and it is giving, but it's also balanced by receiving. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our patients have been such teachers to us over, mm -hmm. our, over our work with them, and um, who's really benefiting here? I, I'm giving, yes, but I'm equally, or probably more so, receiving. What about you? What's, what's just so interesting, whenever I'm in a group of people, particularly new people, people I don't know, uh, and they learn that I'm a chaplain, an end-of-life chaplain, like 
a chaplain specializing in end of life care, um, they always say, wow, well, that's a nice thing to do with your life. But then they say, but isn't that really hard and depressing and heartbreaking? And my first 15 minutes in a, in, in a hospice situation, I, I knew that this was my work. I knew and in retirement, <laughs> in my new career, uh, that I started, uh, almost, almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago. Um, I knew that that's the work that I needed to do. The first time I was with a person who passed, um, what a privilege it was to be there and to see this amazing transformation, this fulfillment of this life, this culmination of this phase of this person's being. And it was so important to be there for the family. I've gained uh, so much joy just being with people. Nobody teaches us how to approach death or how to be prepared for it. Um, and what I what I hear so often is um, people speaking so highly of the chaplains that were with them to help their family through the end of life. And I, that's I, I don't. I always say I am the cleanest I ever am working with um, with people who are dying because they have no time for BS. They have no time for putting on. They only have time for being real and complete. And I have to show up with no idea of, of being there to help, but simply being there. And, and it's always amazing what arises, uh, just, just emptying myself and being present. They have no room for our BS. <laughs> you know, we, we have to meet them as our true self. Our separate self is of no use to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I see the time is nearly up, but I uh, I could tell stories. We could both tell stories. Okay, <laughs> so do we want to, before we go, do we want to say a few things about how to foster joy, how to make it available? I mean, we, we've been talking about it in the abstract as though it's just a switch you turn, but I think there's a, there's a path we have to at least... Um, point towards for people. Well, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily for me, I think the path of joy is really, really easy. And it takes no effort at all. I don't have to dredge anything up to be to experience joy and to experience my true self. Um, it's what remains when I get myself out of the way when I get my small self out of the way. Um, and, it's, and I think it's joy because as we do that, as we follow those practice forms that help us take our preferences and move them to the side, we, we know that we learn that we can live without being owned by the conditions of our lives. Mm. And that, that is joy. And so tying this back to our end of life work, I mean, this really helped. I really saw this recently when I was with my, my niece as she was dying. I mean, I was there at her bedside. I was tearful. I was grieving her pending death and her, and her, and her after she died. But I was also joyful at the same moment because even though I did not want that to be happening, I did not enjoy that in any sense of the word. I did enjoy it 
because I could share that moment with her. I could mm. I could be there, I could support her, I could give her my gratitude for her life, I could witness her passing, and that is a joy that's so much deeper than my desire that she not be ill and dying. Mm. Mm. So that was there because I could let go of my preference that she not be dying. There's letting go again. Yeah. A factor of awakening. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I'd sum up by uh, I'm just saying that, you know, being joyful is giving yourself permission to go ahead and feel good about yourself. To feel good about ourselves in spite of all of our foibles and issues and to feel good about it, all of it, in spite of and because of the suffering that's out there. And in the same way that suffering is a story that we tell ourselves about the pain in our life, joy can be the story we tell ourselves about the life of our life, the life in our life. Joy, let joy be the story you tell. The little phrase I carry for that very thing is, you are enough. Mm. You are enough. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, buddy. That was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. We could go on for another hour, which we typically do. <laughs> <laughs> and then we call back. <laughs> So shall we, uh, shall we close this with uh, the bell? Please. Okay.